Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And we're uh, joining you from the Radiation Proof Podcast Chamber here at HowStuffWorks.com. In, in, for now. For now. Julie, what's your favorite vision of a futuristic city? Hmm. I'm going to have to go super old school and say the Jetsons. The Jetsons. Okay. Yes. I love the the uh, domestic setup that they have. Okay. And With the robot doing everything? Yes. Okay. And then the, the whole food being prepared. Um, and then, you know, I love that, that you're just flying around and you can go through your drive-thrus yeah. in your uh, your own little spacecraft. Cool. Yeah. Well, this is a this is a topic I could I I could I also could, like the fashion. Sorry, <laughs> the fashion. Yeah, yeah. They had like I love the little like little uh, like Saturn rings around everything. Yeah, when yeah. They do that. Yeah. Yep. Um, when it comes to you know talking about futuristic futuristic cities, I could I could probably go on too long, and I, I probably will start going on too long. In which case, just be prepared to jump in and stop me. But uh, oh, I will. Okay. Uh, I mean, th- there are so many classic visions. Of, there's of course Metropolis. Yes, the 1929 or something, thereabouts. Yeah, old, uh, the old black and white silent. Yeah, uh, German yeah. expressionist mm-hmm. film. Yeah, it just showed this massive, just, you know, today it's, you know, kind of like a retro futurist thing, I guess, you know, but just a massive yeah. city. It's like the city uh, on steroids, if you will. Um, and, right, with and, these uh, giant skyscrape. The right. fat cats at the top. Yeah, and the idea everybody that, else toiling underneath. Exactly. Yeah, almost kind of like a, a Morlocks kind of thing going on. You know? Yeah. And and it's you know it's kind of a natural extrapolation of of population growth and uh, technological advancement. Buildings keep getting higher, so they're just going to keep getting higher, right? Right. So you end up with. And so we were thinking about that even back in the day, right? Right. Yeah. And so by the time like Blade Runner came out. You know that that really set the standard for uh, for a lot of people's imaginations of what a uh, just a future cityscape might look out look like. Well, I think it finally revealed that replicants are among us. Yeah, yeah, it was actually it was a documentary actually. Um, Little and, known fact. Yeah, and there's a, there's another uh, example that I personally really love, and I have a love hate relationship with this particular book. Uh, but there's a book called uh, The Nightland by William Hope Hodgson, and. Uh, this was like an early 20th century book that uh, that dealt with like a post-apocalyptic world in which the uh, the sun has gone out and the world is cooled and uh, the last remnants of, of humanity live in this enormous pyramid called the Last Redoubt and um, and so it's like that everybody lives on these different different floors and they grow food in there and it's heated by ge- geothermal em- energies mm-hmm. and then there's like a whole there's like a second pyramid underneath the the top one. Uh, where they grow, uh, like all the food and it's, it's kind of a horribly written book. Uh, it's really a pain to read. Um, really, uh, outrageous, uh, writing style where he's, he's, you know, it's, it's just, it's rough. But the, uh, but if you can, you sort of pick through, uh, all the bad writing, there's just a tremendous, uh, ahead of its time vision. I mean, you, just telling me that right there is, it's amazing because that's what futurists are planning for us, not, too far off here. I mean, some people are thinking about what you just described happening for us within 20 years, yeah, let alone like 100. There's a, there's actually an excellent, uh, uh, really kind of a theoretical um, plan for something called the Shimizu Megacity Pyramid. And this is, again, very theoretical, uh, but there, and it's, it's partially inspired by Blade Runner. But this would be a giant pyramid on Tokyo Bay, 12 times higher than the Great Pyramid of Giza. 
with a an occupancy of seven hundred and fifty thousand. And and this is an example of all, all most of these these really large scale. When we're talking about like cities that yeah. that are just like a cityscape kind of situation, a Blade Runner type of uh, situation, um, we're talking about uh, something that's called arcology, which is a um, portmanteau or wordable, if you like, nice. uh, of the uh, words architecture and ecology. So in other words, it's just architecture um, and and design on a scale that is really more like a landscape that can accommodate our enormous population. Exactly. And to bring it down to brass tacks, I think the reason why we're so interested in this topic is because uh, right now, half of the world's population, 6.8 billion people, live in cities. Mm-hmm. And it's estimated by 2050 that two-thirds of the population will live in cities. So obviously this trend is not stopping. And then just to put this into context, think about in 1800 when less than 3% of the world lived in cities. So what does that mean for us? I mean, that means obviously besides a lot more people, a lot more mouths to feed, we have less available land. We've got all sorts of issues that we need to try to to solve. And, and I, I even think about it in this, in this way, like the best, uh, DIY home show worth its salt will always tell you when you run out of room, what do you do? Build. You build up. Build up. Yeah. yeah. You go vertical. So we're looking at a future where the sky, the, the landscape is just going to be completely populated with these superstructures. And again, it's not too far down the road that this is happening. And in fact, there are a lot of construction projects right now that are underway. Yeah, it's um, it, it's uh, there 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 are even people who look into the future and uh, and start dreaming about. Uh, I don't know if it's a dream or or if it's really more like a nightmare. But um, <laughs> the idea of the uh, ecumenopolis, which is a city made from an entire world. So if you can imagine, it's really like the concept that uh, uh, I think, think Grant Morrison uh, presented this in uh, The Invisibles, but like the city as a as, an, as, a, as a cancer that kind of takes oh, right. over a whole planet, right? And uh, and sort of yeah, the city as as a cancer, and the city as this uh, as the, the physical manifestation of humanity uh, in all its worst properties. The city as a character, as a living, breathing thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not just us thinking about this. The TED founder, Richard Saul Werman, he actually has a project called 192021, and that is a case study of 19 cities with populations that will meet or exceed 20 million by the end of the 21st century. And uh, these most of these 19 cities border oceans. And so his thinking and that foundation's thinking is that there's going to be rising sea levels and there's going to be all sorts of weird meteorological patterns happening. And so those cities really need to be studied in terms of how they're going to deal with food production, transportation, water resources, and all that good stuff. So on, on a very practical level, it's an issue that we need to look at. And people just keep pointing up and saying, we're going to be living in these crazy vertical structures. And, you know, we may be on the 500th floor. Yeah, it, it's easy to you know, people look at these these giant mega structures and they're like, oh, there'll be there'll be like a restaurant in there. There'll be a restaurant in every floor, you know. Yeah. But yeah. um, but when you look at the the stats for uh, you know, revolving around the feeding the people on this planet, it, it's pretty staggering. I mean, for, for starters, demographics predict that the planet will host uh, 9.5 billion people by 2050. Yep. At least according to one study we we're looking at, and because each of us require a minimum of 
1,500 calories a day, uh, you were pointing this out, so civilization would have to cultivate uh, like a Brazil's worth of land, right? Yeah. It's like 2.1 billion acres. And it relates uh, directly to uh, something that uh, uh, is often referred to as the e- as eco-footprint analysis. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the, the thing is you look at different parts of the world, uh, the amount of land required to feed uh, one given person varies. So people in the devel- in developed countries such as United States and Japan, for instance, uh, each require an estimated 10 to 25 acres of land to support their lifestyle. So that's that's a you know pretty staggering footprint. Yeah. And and according to uh, population ecologist uh, William E. Rees, the global average breaks down to 5.4 acres per person. And unfortunately, the planet only has enough bioproductive surface area to allot 4.4 acres to each of its 6.8 billion residents. So um, human civilization's current eco footprint is already 22 percent beyond sustainable levels. OK, so what you're saying is we just we don't have the land. We don't have arable land, new arable land available to right. us. So again, we we're in the same figure. situation. We're out of room. What are we going to do? Yeah, yeah. go up. Um, and I think it's interesting to look right now at a, at a couple of current examples just so that we can kind of get our footing on what this means to us. And one of the examples is the Bionic Tower in Shanghai. Oh, yeah. This one's pretty uh, staggering. Yeah, this is a crazy structure. It's, uh, it's slated to start construction in 2015, and it's going to take 15 years to build 4,000 feet tall with 300 floors, and the structure will contain 12 vertical neighborhoods. And we're talking about green spaces, urban spaces. I mean, just think about think about New York sort of sandwiched in a building, mm. for instance. Right. And the structure, if I may, is, is a very phallic-looking structure, and uh, it is centered in an artificial lake. And the reason for the lake is so that it could absorb any shock waves from earthquakes. And uh, it, they proposed putting a bunch of, I guess you, what you'd say, regular-sized buildings at the base uh-huh. that they'd have little trams to go to. And, I mean, basically, you would never, ever have to leave this structure your entire life, which is just mind-blowing. Yeah. Well, it, it reminds me, again, of uh, the last redoubt in the Nightland, where the situation is there are people that live and die older generations without leaving the structure. Right. Yeah. And it makes, I mean, uh, it begs the question for me, like, okay, well, this is, this is something we're looking at in the next 20, 30 years. In 500 years, are we just going to all be in like a little five by five pod up in the sky, you know, living and dying in that same space or, you know, it, well, you know, not to get depressing or anything. Well, it's not depressing because you have to realize video games are going to be crazy good by that time, you know? So <laughs> why would you leave? You wouldn't even care about the sunset looking so beautiful at that height. Yeah. You're right. I mean, they're pretty great now, but, uh, you know, by this point, they're going to be like, I don't have to go outside. Great. I'm just on the first level of Fallout 12. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, maybe that's not so much of a concern. But, you know, in our minds right now... 2010, it's sort of inconceivable. And then just from an engineering standpoint, you think about wind and movement at that height. You you can't have any structure move any more than one four hundredth of its height or else it's too unstable. Yeah, I I ran across some interesting uh, um, statistics on this. Uh, In in numerical terms, uh, the support and and stability of a building uh, translates to an aspect ratio between six and eight. Okay, so bear with me. so you I'm want hanging on. Okay. So uh the, the aspect ratio in this case is calculated by dividing the height of a building by the width of its base. Okay. This is kind of the, the if you've ever like built anything out of clay or something, you know, you want like 
a, a strong base to support height. Sure. Okay. So um, to achieve uh, a desirable aspect ratio of seven, uh, a bionic tower, and this is based on a, like you gave a 4,000 foot um, height. Right. And uh, I've seen other um, height estimates that, that were lower, like 3,281. Uh, so this might not completely mesh with that uh, with the four thousand number. Okay. But uh, if it were th- if uh, the tower were th- uh, three thousand two hundred eighty one feet tall, the base would then need to be four hundred and sixty nine feet wide. Whoa. Okay. So. All right. So I mean, we're talking about just an, an enormous structure. Right. Right. And then the other thing that I'm thinking about too is something called the stack effect, mm-hmm. which is that that wind moaning that you hear when you're up in a really, really high space uh-huh. and particularly in buildings where you get that whistling effect with elevators. So yeah, you might have a great view, but you might be haunted by like this eraser head like noise all the time. Yeah. And speaking of elevators, uh, the estimate that I was looking at for the Bionic Tower, 368 elevators. Okay. So you need to completely rethink elevator talk yeah. at this point, right? Yeah. I mean, assuming we can assume that they have some good speed to them, but still. Yeah, even if they're basically wonk evaders, I mean, they're <laughs> the three hundred sixty-eight is is pretty massive, uh, and and it's one of the the uh, problems you run into with with a lot of uh, like super tall skyscraper uh, situations. Yeah, for instance, uh, how stuff works is located in a uh, what were fifteen floors. 14, technically. 16, 16 like yeah, penthouse. because the 13th is taken out. We're not on the penthouse. Yeah, and then yeah. it's the secret floor with the mole men. And, right. You know, but um, but so we have two banks of elevators, two one one with four elevators going up, what, like halfway, and then yeah. four other elevators going up the rest of the way. And that more or less makes sense. If you've ever been, say, like like I, the dorm that I was in in college had two elevators that serviced uh, 12 floors, uh, and it was one of these situations where the – the higher you were, the more difficult it was to catch an elevator. Right. So uh, extrapolate that to a 500-floor building, and it, it gets ridiculous. Like, you have to have elevators that, that, that say, do, uh, you know, floors 1 through 10. Then another has to do the next 10 floors, the next 10 floors, uh, et cetera. You have to make it to where uh, people aren't spending half their day just ascending. Traveling. Yeah. 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 So I guess that would invert that, that paradigm, too, that maybe the, the best floor would be, like, the 10th floor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's just something to think about. And, and then it, also talking about extrapolating, if, if people were to be living in these sort of mega cities with these structures, you start to think about any sort of interlocking tunnels that might run between the buildings. Oh, yeah, because that's another big staple of, I mean, I'm a huge fan of sky bridges. I see a sky yeah. bridge between buildings. I'm like, oh, imagine the, <laughs> like, it goes I back to when walk I'm, it. yeah, like, and I'm thinking, like, as a kid, it's like I would always, like, dream up, uh, like, fight scenarios between characters in non-existent action films, like where they would have to fight on a, on a, on a sky bridge, in a sky bridge, and then, of course, a window breaks, and they have to fight on top of the sky bridge. Wow. They're amazing. You know? So I didn't know that. Sky bridges, like, they're, they, they're pretty important to you. Well, they're they're just great. I mean, it's like it's this man-made little bridge on the top of, like, two man-made mountains or, or you know, bridging them together. Like, I almost wreck the car anytime I drive under one. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah good to know if you're driving with you. Yeah. Yeah. So... I mean, that's Bionic Tower. That's one example. Uh, well, the, a little more about the Bionic Tower, though. Um, I, I was reading uh, that there's also a, a – you're talking about the wind going yeah. on. Well, it can actually turn a building into a giant tuning fork. There's a phenomenon called vortex shedding. Oh, Lord. And uh, basically it breaks down like this. As the wind blows around the corners of a building, okay, spins off into eddies, all right, or, or masses of whirling air. 
and uh, the frequency at which uh, the the eddies of air are shed increases the wind speed. So um, this can build up, and you end up with a dangerous effect called resonance. Okay. And um, and so and this just causes the building to move more and more to where you could potentially potentially have windows shatter. Um, you know, stuff is cracking, things are falling apart. Right. Yeah, I hadn't even thought. So that's the the tuning fork effect. Yes. Yeah. So that the, it's it's basically conducting all of these vibrations to the point where it shatters. Yeah. Am I hearing you right on that? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you end up having to you, you need to have like aerodynamic features to a yeah. building a lot of times, or you use a um, a dampening system, and this is just something like a uh, oh like a four hundred ton concrete block, such as in New York City's uh, City Court building, uh, to absorb the vibrations like a giant shock absorber. Okay. Yeah. All right. I had to just make sure because as soon as you said tuning forks, I was like thrown back to Costa Rica where I was staying at this place unbeknownst to me with a a woman was a healer who was trying to heal me with tuning forks. So Uh I had a little bit of a moment there. I had a repressed memory. I hope you don't mind. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, obviously there are there are some practical things that would hinder us right now in terms of the technology. Yeah. At least you would think so with Bionic Tower. Like the th- that sort of upkeep seems insane. Now, Bionic Tower is also interesting in that they, I mean, the whole name comes from Bionic as in bio, as right. in biomimetics, as in looking to nature to solve human problems. Not the Bionic Man? Well, no, not really. Uh, but uh, I don't know. I'm not a, <laughs> or a woman. Or, or, or maybe. But, you know, it's the idea that it's like, hey, I need to design a... Um, um, I need to design an airplane. I need to design something that can fly in the air. Mm-hmm. So I can either have a scientist fi- look at look at this problem and depend on human uh, science. It's you know maybe been analyzing this problem for what you know some few hundred years or something, or right. I can look to evolution, which has been tackling this problem for a much longer period of time, looking to nature to solve uh, human engineering problems. So they they make a, a a big show with the Bionic Tower of talking about how that the um, how they have these 92 vertical columns in the design to uh, you know for energy and water and other supplies and mm-hmm. then this is like um, the uh, some of the transport systems in a vascular plant. Okay. And they also talk about uh, the the base of the tower would be kind of like a root system in a tree, which on on the surface sounds great, uh, but but the, but uh, if if you look at some of the uh, info out there about um, I'm just thinking about, I recently went to Yosemite National Park, and they have the giant sequoias there, which are, right. you know, enormous trees, really uh, interesting to, to look at. And on the surface, you might think, yeah, if I wanted to build a super tall building, I'd totally look to a giant sequoia, because they have it all figured out. But the thing is, giant sequoias, though they live pretty long, they fall down when they're when the wind blows too, <laughs> right. too strong, or there's like a really harsh winter, they, they, they collapse. They're not reinforced with steel. Right. And, you know, the whole... Um, the, the whole you know giant tree with the uh, the tunnel cut out in the middle. No, tell me about. Oh, this. You've, you've seen this, I'm sure. Um, and Yosemite is a great place, but but like a, a, lot, a lot of parks in oh, U.S. Yes, history. Oh yes, I have. Yeah. Yep. yeah, there was a time when it was like totally fine to like <laughs> feed garbage to bears, right? And to cut a pathway through. Yeah, for cut tourists. a pathway through through the tree so you could drive your car through. And uh, the tree eventually died, but not. Because of the the tunnel, mm-hmm. like the the tree can survive that. They're typically damaged by fire to the point where there's a giant hole in the base anyway. But the cars driving over the root system, like that, the root system is pretty shallow, right? And that's one of the things that really did it in. So that's why you can't actually walk up and thank goodness carve your name onto the side of a giant sequoia in Yosemite. So did anyway, you do that? no, I did not do okay, that. I, I respect. I'm very respectful of nature. I know. Those I, trees are I knew awesome. You I knew. Um, I spray painted it. So it's of not course, so, yeah. yeah, right. So, um, 
So yeah, when when I when I read about people looking to trees, and I'm, obviously they're not gonna, it's not gonna be that s- simplistic a situation. No. But I, I can't help but think that it's like, well, this is this is not really a problem that nature has solved. It's not a problem nature wants to solve, you know. So, but but still, there are the the, the concept of looking to nature to solve uh, engineering problems is a really good one. Yeah, I think was it Buckminster Fuller? Maybe Did I have some memory of him, uh, reading something once in which he said that a structure can be Perfect, but it's not beautiful until it does have some sort of mimicry of nature to it. Oh yeah, like you get into the whole, um, um, you know, any, any kind of uh, you know, look at classical architecture. They were really uh, big into the uh, uh, the golden mean and all that, you know. So, right, yeah. right, okay. So, Bionic Tower. There you go with that one. And then another one in the works is Mazdar City in Abu Dhabi, and that is going to be the first carbon neutral city, and it should be completed by 2013. And what they're trying to do is to build a city of 40,000 inhabitants where 80% of the water can be recycled. And uh, cars will be banned and replaced by a personal rapid transit system, which is a subterranean system using cars powered by solar batteries. And they look really cool, I have to say. But I'm kind of picturing like a little casket that you climb into and it like shoots you to your, you know, from the restaurant to your apartment. So dark. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's more like a pod, a casket yeah. pod. Okay. And it's white. Well, that's not nightmaric at all. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, just bulleting you through a town, but it can carry, uh, something like three to six people, depending on the design. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that it could be shared by people. Um, and I, I suppose it could be sort of like a taxi cab system too, but they actually have those in use at, uh, Heathrow, I believe they're testing them out, but mm-hmm. they're not open to the public. So that's one of the technologies that we actually have in place right now, um, which is kind of interesting to see that that's happening. Um, and then there's another structure, of course, in Dubai. Right. It's called the Crescent Hydropolis. And this is an instance where they're going underground into the ocean. And it's supposedly it's the world's first luxury underwater hotel. I say supposedly just because it's not because because there could be more under that because they're underwater you can't see them yeah I don't know they could be it could be a shack under there yeah. who knows um but there's supposed to be 200 submarine suites and guests will be arrive at a land station and then be transported via a train yeah and it has a 1.1 million square feet which includes a shopping mall restaurants movie theaters and oh. A missile defense system. Oh, well, of course. Yeah. yeah. And so you got to wonder, like, that was sort of the impetus for the whole design in the first place. <laughs> How can we sell a missile defense system? Put a movie theater in it. Then yeah. Yeah. Well, a luxury boutique hotel, under, <laughs> you know, 60 feet under the water. Um, so there, there are different ways that people are thinking about moving the population. I mean, this obviously that's a luxury hotel that isn't going to be, that's not a model that we could use across the board. Uh, to try to deal with our population problems. But it's certainly a different way of thinking about using the space that we have. Um, and then that also, we talked about this already, the, the fact that there is going to be a huge demand for food. Uh-huh. Uh, 9.5 billion people by 2050. So again, people are looking up and saying vertical farming is the answer. Okay. And uh, if you look at our model right now, Agriculture, we use like 70% of freshwater resources, and mm-hmm. then we render that most of that unsafe to drink because of pesticides, fertilizers, etc. in there. So if you do a hydroponic system or if you, if you grow vertical farms, obviously you're not having to pollute the, the actual earth 
and you get a lot cleaner of a resource. And this I thought was a really interesting stat that one square block farm, a one square block farm 30 stories high could yield as much food as 2,400 outdoor acres, which wow. is, yeah, crazy. And then supposedly there's, there's not as much spoilage either. They didn't really go into why that is. And, uh-huh. you know, I was just sort of thinking, well, maybe that's just because you reach outside of your window and you grab that tomato or whatever and it's more visible. I don't know. It's harvested better. Uh-huh. But, um, so growing food in high glass high rises could really like drastically reduce fossil fuel emissions and recycle wastewater. And this is an actual good logical way to try to deal with population growth and, and go up and, up on our skyscrapers and utilize them. Wow. Yeah, especially, and I was thinking about this too, in an apocalyptic way too, not to, not to go dark, but I mean, if you do have all of these buildings that are just empty husks sitting around, why not try to, to grow vertically up them? You know, at least use them as a surface. Yeah, it's better than using it for, you know, giant advertisements. Which, right. Which always irritates me because there's like one particular building in Atlanta, uh, and I don't know the name of it. It's just, it's very visible when you're going, uh, straight through the city on the connector. There's this old building and it's, you know, it's, it's clearly just decrepit. And I think there's maybe a parking lot at the bottom that they make money off of. Uh, but it's an awesome old building. I yeah. love looking at it. And there was a brief period where they covered it with an advertisement like they do all the time in New York. And I was, I was heartbroken. I was like, Oh, that's, that's, that's horrible. Like they covered up this, this beautiful ruinous building. Right. Uh, which if, if nothing else, Atlanta has some great ruinous looking buildings. <laughs> yes. Like there's a, uh, there's a current television show. I'm sure everybody or a lot of people are watching The Walking Dead, which is a, you know, zombie apocalypse thing. And they yes. filmed it in Atlanta. And it's great because the characters, it takes place like, you know, a few months after the zombie apocalypse and they're walking through really apocalyptic looking buildings. And of course the, the take home here is that Atlanta already looked apocalyptic because it, not <laughs> enough time has passed in the show for things to, you know, turn into rubble. It's like we already have all that rubble right. around and all these like really cool urban contested spaces. That's why they picked us. Yeah. We're not just all, you know, verandas and, and, uh, iced tea. Yeah. <laughs> we've got, we've got some, uh, molting going on, yeah. I guess you would say, but getting back to the, the buildings of the future and, and what might eventually become some sort of crumbling building, you definitely need technology, right? Right. Um, to support these models. And I'm thinking about the trams between buildings and the personal transit systems. And I'm thinking about like your favorite subject, jetpacks. I'm kidding. <laughs> Cause I know that like they're the bane of your existence. No, they're not the bane of my existence. I just, they're just so silly now. I mean, they're, they're great. I love the Rocketeer when it came out, but, uh, I know they're silly, but I'm telling you, I think that like in 50 years, they're going to be the Vespas up in the sky. You know, people are going to be drinking their lattes with, you know, little (laughs) jetpacks. But in particularly because next year they're going to be commercially released to the public and Uh they're going to start at $100,000. Oh, wow. Right. Well, I'm going to, I need to invest in uh, like spinal uh, replacement technology because I think a lot of people are going to go nose up. That's just my prediction. I think you're right. Yeah. I think that's not a bad idea. Still flying around with martinis, that's a pretty optimistic vision of the future. Right. I mean, you have to think that's, you know, in 50 years, 100 years, they could be, you know, the $100,000 will be a dollar. Everybody's <laughs> going to be with their personal jetpacks flying around. And that's just a whole other can of worms. But, I mean, you, you need the technology, right? Right. If you're going to go yeah, vertical. I, I mean, how else are you going to pick the tomatoes off the skyscraper? This presentation is brought to you by Intel, sponsors of tomorrow.
Of course, one of the interesting things to, to keep in mind about a lot of these plants is, you know, people are saying, oh, well, you're going to build a, you're going to build a giant pyramid in Japan. Uh, great. Who's going to build it? Well, maybe robots. <laughs> right. It's the, uh, I mean, it's, it's Japan. They love their, their robots and are generally at the forefront of, uh, of ro- robotic, uh, technology. So, uh, the idea is that you'll have robotic workers building these things. Right. Robotic workers servicing these things and possibly, uh, I mean, nanotechnology in the fabric of the thing itself. These, you know, artificial, uh, structures at a, at a very minute scale. Right. I mean, imagine this, like you, you go to check in to your residence, right? right. Where you also work, <laughs> you know, and uh-huh. you, you never leave this building. It's, you know, 2073 right now. And maybe you're the robot who's checking you in is actually has a, a, a outfit, if you will, uh, made out of nanotubes that you could enmesh in there. And those nanotubes are so super crazy, sophisticated that they're that they're actually pulling in photons into the photovoltaic cells mm-hmm. on there. And, and they're basically like solar panels because you're in an all glass building. Right. Right. So. Even the robots are recycling energy for you. So, I mean, not only are they checking you in and cooking your food and pretty much doing everything for you so that you're, you're living the life of Riley on the 500th floor. Yeah. But I mean, they're, they're providing your energy for you. It, yeah. It's basically, uh, I was telling you that it's kind of like the, um, the basic concept between, behind Ian M. Banks, uh, culture series where we reach a point where robots basically do everything and, uh, humans kind of, yeah. Yeah, and this, this you were telling me, it made me feel so much better. It's, it's the benevolent version of the technological singularity. Yeah. Which in technological singularity, we can do an entire podcast on and, and yeah, this, should and will. This is the idea that, that machines reach the point, the singularity, where they're smarter than us, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And the distance between machine intellect and uh, human intellect just uh, expands exponentially. Right. And it, it sounds very sci-fi, uh, but there, it's actually an idea that's that's worth looking into when and considering carefully. Yeah. And it has to do with law, uh, Moore's law and all sorts of stuff that, again, we could talk about later. But you have to think that at least in 2073, with the t- sort of technology we have right now, that robots would play a really big part in our lives. Yeah. Well, and so it's a, I like the idea that we just we sit around and they do everything for us, <laughs> <laughs> and we become this. Benevolent culture that's trying to spread it to other uh, planets. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so that, mean, that's the the lighthearted side of giant, you know, machine driven mega cultures. But uh, yeah, and, and there's some pros and cons to this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the uh, pros to to having the sort of population growth are that denser populations would necessitate environmental solutions. So potentially we could live greener. Right. But then there's humanity's track record, right? Yeah. I mean, I look at the situation and I say, I don't know, these these uh hyper skyscrapers, they could just end up being ghettos or you know, essentially mirror the way that we already live culturally mm-hmm. with all sorts of different strata of, of socioeconomic conditions. Yeah, and it's I also have a, a hard time though like I have a hard time looking up at like a, a normal skyscraper today, like that, or you know, a really high-rise apartment building, and and thinking, who are the people that live here? You know, are there right. are there that many like surgeons and lawyers that can occupy this uh, this uh, pristine uh, real estate? You know, um, we're not pristine, but choice. I guess it's pristine. It's probably clean up there. Um, 
you know, who are these people? And then when I start thinking about like these giant skyscrapers, like who are who are these people living in there? What do they do for a living within the the skyscraper? They never leave, right? You know, unless you have this situation where the people don't have to do anything, and that of course comes with its share of utopian problems as well. Right, right. And I'm for any theater geeks out there too. I'm thinking about you're in town, in which the you know the the head of this corporation um, lives at the very top of this giant structure Mm -hmm. and they've had a 20 year drought. Their sewer system is crazy. They just have very little water resources and people have to start paying to go to the bathroom. And so again, it's like metropolis where you've got the fat cats at the top, the, you know, the corporate tycoons and the, the lowlies at the bottom. Yeah. You know, us plebes, you know, toiling. It reminds me a lot um, in t- talking about sort of pessimistic views of what these like this kind of life on the 500th floor would consist of. There's a, a San Francisco artist. Uh, he's dead now, but it, his name's uh, Irving Norman. And uh, it, do look him up uh, because he created this this fabulous uh, nightmaric visions. Uh, you know, he was he was like a huge he was Spanish born. He was a huge critic of of where the country was going in the 20th century and where and and, and what capitalism was going to do um, to society. And uh, and so he created these. There's one particular uh, like triptych that's uh, in uh, uh, that you can you can see if you go to the the, the art museum there in uh, San Francisco. Uh, where it's just these massive skyscrapers and it's just like miserable, like soulless looking people occupying little cells. And, uh, and if you, in, in the, in the higher portions of the building, and then if you look at the base of the building in the basement, it's like just assembly lines of like human misery. And it's, it's like I say, beautiful, nightmaric stuff. And it's, uh, it's sort of a nice counterweight to the whole, uh, you know, flying around with your martini and a, with a jet pack and, you know, taking your Wonka Vader up to the restaurant on the, uh, the, the on the dining deck. So if you like your apocalypse, that's that's a good one to go to. Yeah, a little a little apocalyptic, yeah. sort of in a different way, I suppose. I was also thinking about the antithesis of this, which is uh, Thomas Kincaid, okay, the painter of lights. Are you familiar with his work? Uh, it's just the um, like to describe a piece for me. Oh, it's crazy it's popular. Like I heard something on an oh, the oh. other day that he's in like one out of every twenty homes. Okay, is in this, some fashion. Is this or the guy that it's a lot of like really pale looking women holding like things that are glowing? No, like really blown out, like white looking. No, but that photos? sounds. Wait, really, these photos are paintings. These are paintings, oh, okay. and these are like these really nostalgic paintings. He's called the Painter of Lights, and it's usually snowy scenes, you know, 1900s mm-hmm. uh, or what would appear to be like the 1900s, um, you know, the night stars twinkling, and you know, it doesn't really actually depict the 1900s as they were. It's it's more of like this imagined oh, okay. history gotcha, gotcha. of simpler times, and you know, it's our. our um, our penchant for creating these false histories for ourselves. Right. So I was sort of thinking, okay, in the in the benevolent version that we have of the future, where robots are doing everything for us, and, and we become these these great benevolent creatures trying to um, share our, our uh, robotic wealth with the galaxy, that we pine for yesteryear. Yeah. In that we, you know, even though we've got all these trips planned to go to Mars and the Moon. Um, and those are super fantastic things that we still can't help but look back and idealize the past. And so I was thinking about like this Thomas Kincaid like pictures, like what would they look like of where we are in 2010? Would it would it be like an office scene mm-hmm. instead of snow that you'd have the concrete like being all pearlescent and the glow from the from our screens, like, huh. you know, like this candlelight glow and people in the future will look back and go, oh, in 2010, it was just so much easier. 
Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's interesting, too, that you point this out, because we're talking about idealized visions of the past. Right. And this whole podcast has been about, basically, for the most part, idealized visions of the future. It's the same movement uh, in in a different direction. Um, oh, don't get quantum on me. No, no, no. I'm, I'm just a... <laughs> Yeah, you know, we're basically talking about the same sort of thing where we're, we're, it's also, I've heard it compared like science fiction is, is, is a, you know, it's a fantastic future. Right. And it's, and then fantasy, uh, fiction is the same, the same movement, but in reverse, looking into the past. Yeah. Like a fantastic vision of the past. Anyway, it gets. No, no, I know, I know what you're saying. Like you were even bringing up the Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, earlier of the Illinois, the, the, um, fictional skyscraper that Frank Lloyd Designs. Oh yeah, yeah. He and does. there's there's something nostalgic about looking at that. That that's what like uh, he designed that to be five thousand feet tall or something. Yeah, it was going to be yeah five thousand two hundred seventy eight feet tall, like darn near a mile high. Yeah, and uh, and it's pretty visionary. Uh, go to uh, in fact, if listening to this now, uh, you can go to the blogs. I'm going to uh, post this uh, awesome video that uh, that uh, someone did for um, a Guggenheim exhibit. And it's uh, like a 3D model of what this would have looked like had it been built okay. and uh, how it rates with the other existing skyscrapers. Right. So, right. Very but, cool. But yeah, it's very, like, if you look at it now and it's, it's this interesting, it, it's kind of like science fiction. It's where, yeah. um, you know, Wright thought we might be in the future. Right. He didn't think about all the elevators it was going to take. No, yeah. The there were some, there were definitely problems with uh, the engineering on that building. Yeah. That's yeah. why architects and engineers, they just, it's always butting heads. I know. Look at know. falling water. That, that needed a little help, uh, from the engineers. So, yeah, there you go. Nostalgia. That's how it happens. You talk about the future and you get all nostalgic. Speaking of past and future, we do have some listener mail from the present. For now. So we have, uh, one listener by the name of Oscar. And Oscar, uh, will write in, uh, every now and then. And he, uh, is really, he's one of these, uh, these listeners who really shares his, his mind. Yeah. And he's got some really thought provoking ideas. Yeah. And, and he knows that we cannot read everything he sends us because it's, he gives us a lot of data, but I wanted to read a little a bit. He was, uh, responding to our, um, recent podcast, uh, Alien Etiquette 101, in which, uh, we discuss, um, what kind of information we're providing aliens with and what information we should provide them with potentially and, and how, and what kind of processes need to be involved in preparing to speak to aliens should their presence right and how known. people are trying to legislate that right now right. even though this just sort of this idea up there in the ether yeah so Oscar uh, shared some thoughts here he said regarding uh, content I think lawyers and politicians should keep as far away from that project as possible mainly because they both base their careers on twisting words selfish use of information and strong personal greed not something to be shared really I have always thought that artists would not be a very good choice either since as you mentioned no matter how much of the human essence they manage to capture the information only makes sense within our human context. Love, friendship, selfishness um, are considered to be different things even within our own communities, not to mention different cultures and or times. Until a more objective view on abstractions can be attained, we should try to avoid those too, if only to avoid confusion on first meetings. That would leave science as the best way to make our first approach, and math is the way to go. Here, here, Oscar. Yeah. Talk to the aliens with math. I, I think that makes the most sense, though it also brings it share problems, as we discussed in that podcast. Yes, some logistical things going on there. Right. Yeah. So, hey, uh, be sure to check out Tom Harris's amazing article, How Skyscrapers Work. That goes into all the engineering uh, problems and solutions inherent in building something that tall. And uh, and it's really it's really a great article. This, I think, may have been one of the first How Stuff Works articles that I read personally, uh, uh, you know, way before I actually became employed here. 
And uh, then uh, Jacob Silverman has an article called Where Will There Be Farms in New York City Skyscrapers, which goes into uh, some of the vertical farming issues that we've been talking about. Right. And the hydroponic as yes, well, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Be sure to check out our Facebook and Twitter pages. Uh, you can find each as Blow the Mind. And uh, we keep those updated with all sorts of cool links to both uh, How Stuff Works related uh, content and blogs, uh, etc., uh, as well as just really cool stuff that we find on the web uh, in our daily research. And if you've got any thoughts, questions, or you want to share your favorite Thomas Kincaid painting with us, please email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. <laughs>